All right. Good morning, Mercy House. We got a full house today. That's great. Well, welcome again. My name is Tommy Moore. I'm on staff here at Mercy House, and I'm going to do some preaching this morning. Um, if you haven't been with us, or if you're just joining us for the first time, or you haven't been here in a while, let me just give you a real quick recap on where we're at. So this series right now is called Path to Paradise, and what it's doing is it's walking through the covenants that God makes with man one by one. We're kind of getting a, a crash course on covenantal theology, um, and what it is is, is a re-godding, a re-godding of a de-godded people through these covenants. And I'll talk about what that means. So uh, this series starts, and, and really the Bible starts in creation. And, and in this covenant of creation, we see that the relationship between God and with man and, and between man and man is, is perfect. It's paradise, absolute paradise. And then we see very quickly in Genesis that, that we as humans, uh, we, we disobey God. And what we decide to do is we, we choose to de-God God. So we make God not God by disobeying him, uh, and in that process, we break that relationship with God, and we break that relationship with one another, and we break that relationship with all of creation. And so paradise at this point is lost. So there was paradise, paradise is lost, and then God interjects himself to bring about the restoration of that paradise, to bring us down the path of paradise. Um, in this moment of brokenness, God doesn't just destroy his creation. He doesn't start fresh and, and just, he scraps it and start fresh. Um, he, he makes a promise with Adam and with Eve through the covenant of commencement. And we saw this a few weeks ago, which is really the beginning of the restoration process of, of that broken relationship, restoring paradise, and re-godding people. Uh, but creation continues in this path of, of just broken, destructive, sinful living. And again, God intervenes with the promise through the covenant of preservation. And we see this in the story of Noah. We see God's promise of mercy and, and of faithfulness in that restoration process that God won't quit in his mission in redeeming his people to himself no matter what. That's what we see in the story of Noah. And so time passes, and we see God making more promises through uh, uh, the covenant of promise. Um, and this is to Abraham and to Sarah. And this is a, really a major turning point in the narrative of redemption. It, it's an amazing uh, turning point because what we see is that God's promise and his covenant to restore and redeem the brokenness in people extends beyond Abraham beyond his immediate family, beyond his extended family, and even the multitudes of generations after him, God is communicating that he's extending his covenant to all of the nations. This is a, this is a big deal. And the promise that God makes is to bless Abraham and everyone in the world, where, where blessing is not just this like commercial, monetary, circumstantial blessing. It's not like, I'm going to make your day better. I'm going to give you a hundred bucks. What God is talking about when he talks about blessing um, is, is a remedy for sin and its effects in man. It's a fixing of that broken relationship between God and man, a way to permanently re-God a de-Godded human. And again, that blessing is not just for Abraham. It's not just for his family, not just for his descendants, but it's for everybody in creation. It's a big moment. It's, it's a great promise. So if you're keeping track, 
right? There's a lot of incredible promises being made by God. God promises to restore the broken relationship between us and Him. He, he promises that He'll remain merciful and faithful as we, in our sinfulness, try to derail that restoration process. God promises that His restoration is for all of mankind, not just for a couple of people that He interacts with in the book of Genesis. He even adds on that He's going to make uh, a, a people for Himself, showing a level of personal intimacy with everybody. And then he's going to give them a place to live, to top it all off. He's like, I'm going to give you a beautiful place to live. It's going to be a, a land fill, flowing with milk and honey, which is awesome, right? There's no lactose intolerant people back then. They're like, this is great. And so these promises, right, guys, God's making them, they're like additional amendments to, to God's covenant with his people. So it's, it's not like they're being scrapped and God's saying, okay, that one didn't work. I'm making a new one. He, he's making the agreement better and better on his side, right? He's saying there's going to be more blessing. It just gets sweeter and sweeter. But then there is this other promise that he makes to Abraham. He says, you're going to be outside of the promised land for 400 years. So there's going to be 400 years before you get to this place, before I bring you to the promised land. And that time is going to be under oppression. And so that's what Israel goes through. Um, God is true to his word, and, and that's really where we pick up this morning. And, and here's what we're going to do this morning. This morning, we're going to look at the covenant of the law, the covenant of the law. And what we're going to see is that the law shows Israel how to live as God's people in response to God's grace and salvation. We're going to walk through that this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll jump into the scripture. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to hear from you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word. God, I pray that as we read your word this morning, um, yeah, that, that you would be revealed to us, that we would know you better, that we would understand your love for us, that we would see the, the law as a blessing, God, um, that it would draw us in, um, and that your grace and your salvation in our lives would lead us to response. We love you, God. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the connecting passage kind of from last week to this week, is going to be in Exodus chapter 2, 23 and 25. So it's going to be on the screen behind me. I'm just going to read it real quick. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God new. Now, this is a really important connecting passage because uh, it's showing that God, again, he's not scrapping the old covenants that he made, and, and he's making a new one here with Moses. This is not another draft of the plan that he's coming up with. He, he's not working on something else, like over here in creation. He comes back, he's like, oh, I forgot about you, Abraham. Let's, all right, let's, let's, let's figure out this, uh, a new solution to this problem of a de-godded people. No, this is, this is a, a, a consistent theme that we see. He remembers his covenant, and he intervenes according to the promises that he had already made. And this is absolutely crucial for understanding the, the whole Bible as a single narrative telling one story of redemption, not, not fragmented stories of a disassociated, temperamental God that kind of fluctuates up and down wildly, but a consistent, somewhat complex, but consistent and fluid narrative through it all. And so what does he do? 
God hears their cries, and God rescues Israel out of Egypt. When, when Israel is enslaved under just horrific conditions, God hears the cries of his people, and he brings a miraculous salvation upon them. Now, if you've read Exodus, you know that this is not a story of, of Israel rising up as, as the lower class to, to throw out the, the bougie Egyptians, right? This is not that kind of story. It's not a story of Moses being a revolutionary, right, giving uh, these heroic battlefield speeches, like setting fire to the pyramids and they defeat Egypt in like a big sandy battle. Like, that's not what happens in the book of Exodus. That's not how God rescues them. God does everything. God does absolutely everything to rescue Israel. He takes this weak, starving, poor group of people who are enslaved, and and he miraculously intervenes through 10 crazy plagues to, to liberate them out of Israel. And while it's not this story, this typical Hollywood story of, of a heroic uprising, what you do have is a lot of action and a lot of drama. And so you've got water turning to blood, you've got infestations of toads and locusts, the sky turns completely dark in the middle of the day, oceans are parting, giant tornadoes of fire, the earth is quaking, and Israel's part in all of this, what's Israel's part? Trust God and obey his instructions. Trust God and obey his instructions. God's doing literally all of the heavy lifting. God's like, just follow me, let's go, we're going this way, yep, through the ocean, yep, this way, and they, they do follow him. And they leave Egypt. Now, something to note is that all other covenants previously communicated are between God and one or two people. God and one or two people. Um, in, in the covenant of commencement, it's between God and Adam and Eve. In the covenant of preservation, we see communication between God and Noah. In the covenant of promise between God and Abraham. Uh, it, but then it does affect everybody else. Uh, but here, God's doing something a little bit different. God's instructing Moses, really, to put him on speakerphone. He's opening his line of communication to all of Israel. And so do you see that slow building progress of God's promises taking shape to extend to all the nations? What God is communicating to Moses um, to then communicate to all of Israel are a set of instructions on how to live, a set of instructions for how to live. Now, you can view them as rules, as standards, uh, but I think most accurately, they are a set of instructions that provides direction for the people of Israel in how to conduct themselves as individuals, collectively as a nation, and spiritually with God. So a set of of directions to help people know how to conduct themselves as, as individuals, collectively as a nation, and spiritually with God. Now, the law Even as I say the words, the law, it's one of those things that you need to take a little bit of time to unpack, and for really good reasons. So when we read the New Testament, we see that they're the Judaizers, and and, and Paul is rebuking them because what they're doing is they're taking the law and making it a means of salvation to to achieve, earn God's grace. And Paul says, no, that's wrong, that's incorrect. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, who, who, these are people that maybe Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he would, he would call these people like cheap grace converts. 
meaning the way that they're communicating grace and salvation is saying, I've got Jesus, I I can now live however I want. It doesn't matter how I act or how I conduct myself as long as I'm under grace. The law is kind of this old school notion. It doesn't really apply to me. Uh, Both of those positions are theologically incorrect, yet pretty alarmingly so uh, popular in modern evangelical circles, even here in us in the valley today. And so we might find that we lean one way or the other, whether that's toward the legalism of, of, of owning the law, of needing the law, of living for the law, the purpose of the law for salvation, or the other side of just cheap grace, saying, you know, I got Jesus, I don't need to worry about anything else. We may have a leaning one way or the other. And so let's take a few minutes to clarify some misconceptions about the law. Most misconceptions stem from reading Exodus 20, which is the actual giving of the law, out of context. Um, What you see there, then, are commandments that are just a list of rules that God commands us to follow, things God commands us to do. And then the question is, but why? Like, why is God calling us to do all these things? If you're not reading them in the context of, of at least chapter 19, which is where we are this morning, if you're not reading chapter 19, um, if you're not reading them in the context of Exodus as a whole, which is even more preferable, and then most preferably uh, in the context of all of Genesis and all of Exodus and all of Scripture, for you to be able to see this procedural unveiling of these covenants, if you're not able to see it in the context of the, uh, of the other context, of the narrative, then what we're going to do is we're going to miss the point of the law. And what we're going to do is we're going to insert our own interpretation of why we ought to follow the law based on our common frameworks for laws and rules. And so that framework, really, for us is you follow the law and you are good. If you break the law, you are punished. Like This is our framework for how laws exist in our society today. It starts with the law or the rule, and then based on our obedience or lack of obedience, it ends in reward or punishment. If we look at the law of God in this way, we will fail to understand the purpose of the law. You hear me? If we take this worldview of understanding the law to God's law, we will fail to understand the purpose of God's law. So within the context of, of God's covenants with Israel, the law is not four things, five things, four things, sorry. It's not a way to God. It's, it's not a way to become God's people. Um, it, it's not a ritual to get God to act or respond in any particular way. It's not a way to earn God's grace and salvation. You don't get like angel bucks and you cash those in and then like you get to buy something at the end of the day. It's also not a way to produce salvation or, or impress God by making yourself a certain holy way or, or kind of sanctifying yourself or trying to re-God yourself. This is, these are not the purpose of the law. Yet I think that we can lean in that direction. We lean in that direction because this is how we relate to our laws. We follow the laws to be good citizens. We play by the rules to get a certain outcome. Literally, my two-year-old, when she's good, she gets stars in school, and she takes those scar, the, the stars, and she buys little trinkets that she takes home, right? This is what's being ingrained in my little girl. It's like, if you're good, you get good things, and then you can use those good things to purchase other good things. 
We, we can create an identity by following the law. We can become upstanding citizens. We, we receive accolades and we receive rewards when we follow the law. So this is our framework for the law. See, the difference between worldly laws and the rules, uh, worldly laws and rules and God's law as they're revealed in the Mosaic Covenant um, is that the majority of rules and laws that we live by are purely transactional, purely transactional. The law of God is wholly relational, transactional, relational. And we'll talk about that. So then what is the law? If it's not these things, what, what is the law? The law is a response to the grace of God. That's what the law is. It is the correct response to the grace and the salvation of God. It's not a means to the grace of God. It's not a way to produce the, God, uh, the grace of God or, or to earn God's grace. It's not a ritual to bring about God's grace. The law is a response to the grace of God. Look at Exodus chapter 19, verses uh, 4 through 6. It says, You yourselves have seen, this is God speaking, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. We got to remember, God already saved Israel. Verse 4 there, you saw what I did, past tense, how I bore you, past tense, on eagles' wings and brought you, past tense, to myself. God's already done these things. He's already made them his people. The law then does not save Israel. It's not a prerequisite for Israel's salvation. It does not make Israel God's people. This is easily the most crucial thing to establish as Israel approaches the law. God's not saying, okay, these are the laws that you got to follow, and then I will save you, and then I will rescue, because they're, they're already rescued. God's not saying, follow the law, and then you'll be my people. If you follow these laws, then you'll be my people. They're already his people. They're already his people. The law, then, is how Israel is to respond to God's gracious, gracious salvation and his merciful adoption as his people. So we saw this last week. Uh, we talked about the mark of the covenant between God and Israel being circumcision. We hit some sort of annual quota for talking about circumcision last week in one service. It was a lot of circumcision talk. <laughs> we talked about how circumcision is this irreversible, drastic a practical response that would be the mark of membership into God's family. It was not get circumcised and then you will pay some sort of pain price, which is the, the entry ticket into the family of God to get into the covenant. That's not what God was communicating. He was saying, you are my people and this is a sign of my people. Do you see the difference there? And so at home, right, I got a slide here a couple of my girls, so I only have two girls. Um, I actually have three. So we got Chloe on the left there. Uh, we got Davy on the right. They're sisters uh, and, and my wife as well. But this is mostly uh, pertaining to my girls. So at home, we have some, some basic rules around the house. We call them the more rules for fun and flourishing, right? Uh, and they're really basic. Like, I don't run a, a super tight ship, but it's like, 
eat your food, don't draw on the walls, uh, don't scream unless you're in danger, and go potty before you go to bed. Like, that's it, right? Those are the rules at home. When, when Chloe or Davy, but mostly Chloe, because she's capable of disobedience now, when Chloe doesn't follow these rules, um, uh, she, she, she doesn't follow these rules to be a part of our family, right? She is a more, and this is how a young more ought to live in the more household. So when Chloe is disobedient, when she isn't living according to these simple rules, we don't like disband her from our family, right? She, she doesn't like get thrown outside. It's like, you're no longer a more, get out of here. No, she's always gonna be my daughter. Like no matter what she does. And these rules are gonna get more intense as she gets older, right? right? Hopefully the standard uh, increases. But we don't disband her when she doesn't follow the rules. Conversely, if any of you come to my house, right? and you decide to follow our rules, uh, that doesn't make you a part of my family, right? So you come to my house, you're like, I went potty before bed, right? You're not a more, right? I'll appreciate that. I'll say, great job. Like, th- thank you. Thank you for not drawing all over our walls. Super appreciate it. But you're not like, you're not in my family, right? And so what we have is this distinction between spiritual and practical. So it is by God's grace that Israel is rescued and saved out of Egypt, and, and it's through the law that Israel is to practically respond to that grace and that salvation. But those two things are actually more connected than you would imagine. Dr. J. Ligon Duncan III, it's quite a name, um, he's a professor at the Reformed Theological Seminary, um, and he has this amazing lecture on the Mosaic Covenant, um, and he says this, the goal of the Mosaic Covenant and the giving of the law is not salvation. God has already done the work of salvation. The goal of the Mosaic Covenant is obedience and for Israel to live the way that they are made to live. So why obedience to the law? Or why the law at all? I've got some points for you. Number one, the law shows the holiness of God. The law shows the holiness of God. Uh, Laws and rules communicate the standards of whoever that lawgiver or that rule giver is. Um, These are not things that God has a preference for. These are things that describe who God is. Okay? So it's not saying like, "Mm, I like, these aren't like color preferences for God. God is saying, when when I tell you to not lie, it's because I am a God of truth. I I do not lie. When I tell you to not covet and be jealous uh, of each other, uh, that means that I I don't covet. And so these are descriptions of who God is, and it communicates his holiness. So if you look at Exodus 19, this is the the passage for this uh, morning, um, those next verses, 9 through 22-ish, Um, I'm going to read these out loud. So, verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the the people um, to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. uh, Sorry. Consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. 
No hand shall touch him, but, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. And jump down to verse 16. On, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the, in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 21, and, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord and look, and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. It's a crazy, crazy passage there. There's clearly a difference in holiness between God and man here. Notice all these senses that are being engaged as Israel comprehends the holiness and, and this otherness of God. You've got this like bright shining fire, right, that's visible. You've got this, sm this burning smoke that's all around the mountain that I'm assuming they can smell. The mountain is literally shaking, right? It's an earthquake that's happening now. There's loud trumpets, there's, there's flashes of lightning and loud thunder as God speaks. God is holy. This is not another human being. This is the God of the universe, and he is holy. And the law is a continuing revelation to that reality. Point two, why the, uh, uh, why the law? Uh, the law shows us the brokenness in ourselves. So when we fail to keep the law, what it does is it shows our inability to meet God's standards and his holiness. So in a way, the law acts as kind of like a placement test of sorts, of which Israel does not pass. In fact, they fail over and over and over again. And even in that, though, God offers this gracious provision to cover those failures through a system of sacrifice, which we'll talk about later. But this is one of those things that the law does, is that it reveals how far short we fall from the character and the nature and the standard of God, how far we are from that paradise that God had made us for. Number three, um, the law is a blessing to us. The law is a blessing to us. Does anyone feel that way when they read the law? That, ooh, this is a blessing to me. I love it. It is. It is. God's standards redirect us to the original paradise conditions. And he shows us uh, through the law how to act and live in a way that we were designed to act and live. It, it communicates not just God's standards for holiness, but specifically the standards that he built us to exhibit. So, I mean, think about that for a moment. In a sinless, redeemed, perfect world, the law is, is not something that everyone strives to accomplish. It is the very nature of humankind. It's the default condition of our hearts. It's as sure as the laws of gravity or the laws of thermodynamics. They're, they're not, they're not um, states that the world strives toward. They are a finite description 
of what creation is like, the condition of creation. Now, it's, it's really important to note that as I refer to the, the law, I, I'm talking specifically about the moral law provided by God. So in Scripture, we see um, that laws given to us are really uh, distinguished into three major categories. We've got the civil law, uh, which is really meant to establish the nation of Israel as a theocracy by providing uh, laws concerning civil authority. So we've got civil law. We've got religious law, which pertains to the priesthood, the incense, the ceremonial interactions with God. And then we have the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments. And so we as believers in Christ, those of us who follow Christ, uh, we're called to respond in the moral law, to the moral law. Uh, this is much deeper than we can cover in a single sermon, but to put it very simply, the civil law um, is not applicable to us because we are not a theocratic society, right? So this is specifically for Israel being formed into a sovereign nation. So those laws regarding crime, punishment, civil order, uh, authority, they're provided for the establishment of Israel as a nation. And what we see in the Gospels is that those religious and ceremonial laws are actually fulfilled in Christ. And so laws concerning food preparation, animal sacrifice, the cleansing of our bodies before worship, um, those are all fulfilled in Christ. And what's left then are these moral laws, the instructions for living holy lives, and these are a blessing to us. They're a blessing to us. They're not just... Uh, a blessing to us, but, but the laws allow us to be a blessing to others. We see this in Ab uh, God's covenant with Abraham, saying that I will bless you, and you will be a blessing to the nations. And so we, as, as believers, uh, uh, as, as we follow Christ, what we're seeing is God's standards produce not only this personal paradise, uh, but also a community of paradise, a community of pra uh, paradise. Um, do you know that when you're telling the truth to somebody, when you are being faithful to your spouse, uh, when, when you're not stealing things, when you honor your father and your mother, you're, be, you're being a huge blessing to them. You're being a huge blessing to them. And, and when people are doing things like this to you, they are blessing you. These are things that we should not take for granted. When we conduct ourselves in accordance to the moral law of God, living to his holy standards, it's not just paradise for us. We give a slice of paradise to those that we interact with. That's the beauty of God's church. It's a community in paradise, a taste of that heavenly fellowship that's unbroken, uh, playing out the way that God had designed community to be. Number five, the law provides an opportunity for relationship with God, to participate in the holiness of God. That's what God invites us into as he gives us the law, to experience uh, also the joy of obedience. So my, my daughter, Chloe, our relationship, um, it changes, right? Um, her position as my daughter never changes. Right. She's always my daughter, no matter what she does. Um, but the other day, like, she, I was asking her. She came out to mow with me, so I'm mowing. She's walking behind me. It's super cute. She's collecting flowers, and, like, we're moving leaves around. And then, like, we mow the yard, and there's, like, this one patch of nice grass that we have that's not crabby. It's, like, just this It's, like, three square feet. And so we lay down, and we're rolling around wrestling. And Chloe just looks at me. She's like, I love you, Daddy. I was like, 
I love you too. Like, this is incredible right now. And that whole, like, she's just listening to everything that I'm asking her to do. And we just had this great experience outside. Our relationship was like, it was so sweet in that moment. Now, when she's like screaming, writing on the walls, not going to the bathroom before bed, and breaking all those more family rules, like, she never turns to me. She's like, I love you, Dad. No, like, that's not when she says that. And so there, there is this practical change in relationship with God when we are living in obedience to the rules that God has set up. And those rules are not to crush us, to make us feel awful, or just like, they're not just chores to do. No, these are a blessing to us. He's asking us to operate in the way that he made us to operate. So when we do that, it's sweet for us, it's sweet for others. It's also sweet between us and with God. We see this in John 15. Jesus is talking about what it looks like to be in relationship with him and what it means to bear fruit. And, and, and there is this special fellowship that we get to experience when we walk in the ways that he's calling us to walk. Number six, obeying the law glorifies God and it gods him. I'm going to use God as a, as a verb there. It gods him above other gods. Submission and obedience uh, it elevates the subject of submission and obedience. So when we observe the law, uh, we're obeying God. And when we obey God, we place ourselves under God. We re-God him. We, we place him where he ought to be in our own lives and in our hearts. King supreme. That's what the law does. Uh, number seven, obeying the law pleases God. It pleases God. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for, the, for all the earth is mine. Dr. Duncan, who I uh, quoted earlier, he, he, he describes that every king in the ancient world would have this private stockpile of gold and jewels and, and shiny riches that, that they would value higher than anything else. So it, it would be something that they delight in. It's kind of like this mix between a trophy room and a bank ball all mixed in together. And, and what's absolutely wild is that while these kings would call that their delight and their treasure, God's saying that when we respond to his grace and salvation with obedience to his law, uh, being who we are made to be, we are his treasure. He absolutely delights in us. We are his trophies in that glorious stockpile that he has. I mean, in all of creation, God, like, you're going to treasure us? Like, there are a lot of really cool things out there. But God says, no, this is what I treasure more than any amount of gold, jewels, beautiful mount, like all the other things that I've created. When, when my people are walking in my ways, I treasure that more than anything else in the world. I wouldn't trade anything else in the world for that. I would actually pay the greatest cost for that. Number eight, and this is the last point, the law reveals the need for a better sacrifice, which is Christ. So a system of sacrifice would be provided for Israel uh, when they would fall short of God's holiness. That when they failed to live up to the standard set in the law, um, we see this sacrificial system being provided for Israel. The system would include animal sacrifice that would cleanse and purify them. And what a gracious provision. Um, we can't, we don't have enough time to dive completely into it. That, that would be a whole other sermon, but... Um, the thing about the sacrificial system is that it was, it was momentary. It was momentary. It would only cover the sin that they had committed. So picture this. You would come in. Uh, you would make your sacrifice 
probably on a Sunday. Um, and you'd be clean for maybe a few hours at best, but especially by Monday, um, the spiritual weight and the effects of your sin would demand another sacrifice. Like, it would just weigh on you. You would know that your sins from the previous week were covered by the sacrifice made on Sunday, but by Monday, you're starting to, to rack up the debt, right? The sacrificial system worked. It did work, but the sacrifice of animals was not enough. They, Israel, and us, we need a sacrifice that be, would be once and for all, past, present, and future sin. And so the good news is not just that this satisfactory sacrifice was made on the cross by Jesus Christ, but that the terms of the covenant are exactly as we see them being revealed to Adam, Abraham, and Moses. They are being, this covenant is being extended to all people of all nations by God's unmerited grace through simple faith in him. What a covenant. And that's for us. So if you haven't entered into that covenant, man, this morning is as good a time as any to do that. If you're seeing the holiness of God and you're seeing the brokenness in yourself and you're realizing there is nothing that you can do to repair that brokenness, to permanently fix yourself, know that God is offering the solution in Christ. He's offering salvation, rescue, and adoption into his family um, at the cost of what? Not the law. If you're not a Christian, the law is not for you. If you are not a follower of Christ, if you have not experienced the grace and the salvation of God, the law means nothing to you other than a measuring stick of seeing how far short you fall from perfection. But the law itself is not something for you to follow. It is a response to salvation. And so if you want to receive salvation, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to walk you through that. We're going to have some people in the back uh, who, who you can come back and we'd love to pray for you. Or even if you just have some questions, I'll be back there. I would love to chat with you about it and pray about it if you want to take those steps this morning. For those of us who have received God's grace and have experienced his salvation, the appropriate response is the pursuit of a holy life fueled by grace and the supernatural transforming power of the Holy Spirit, but in following the law. But the, uh, the big question, I think, for us this morning is, do you see the law as a blessing? Do you see the law as a blessing or is it a curse? Is it something that brings life, that brings fellowship, that brings spiritual maturity, that brings wisdom, more faith, deeper trust in God? Or is it something, yeah, is it something that, that you delight in, like we see in Psalm 1? It's just like, oh, I love, I can't get enough of these laws. And we read that, and I think the majority of us are like, what are you talking about? Like, how do you delight in the law? But he does. And that's the beginning of wisdom there. So are we in that place? Or do we see the law as something that we know we should do but don't really want to? I think those are the two camps of the law, right? Dr. Duncan, one last time. I love this guy. He talks about how remaining in God's covenant was totally up to God. So whether you were in it, being kept by it, would stay in it, is totally up to God. But remaining in the promised land would totally be up to Israel. 
a little wild. Salvation is up to God, but our response to that salvation is up to us. So when we fail to live out holy lives, when we fall short of the law, which we absolutely will, there's grace. There's a sacrifice that covers our shortcoming, just like for Israel. But for Israel, uh, where animals fell short, um, the Passover, which we, which we commemorate as we take communion on Sundays, it points toward the perfect and complete sacrifice in Christ. And that's why we come to the table each week. As, as we break the bread and as we drink of the cup of the new covenant, this is what we remember. It's a, it's a reminder for us that this sacrifice would be once and for all to cleanse us from all of our shortcomings, past, present, and future in Christ. Like that's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. And so failure to follow the law, it doesn't unmake us God's people. It doesn't divorce us from Christ. It doesn't unadopt us from God's family. Falling short is, is actually proof that God, continu- as, as God continues to call Israel his people, even after every egregious sin that they would commit against him, they would still remain his people. We see that then salvation is not in the law. It's not in keeping the law. So as you take communion this morning, confess your sin to God. Repent and ask for grace. Responding uh, to salvation by, by living a holy life in obedience to the law is a grace-requiring, grace-demanding experience and life. But it's paradise. It's paradise. So let's live in paradise, Mercy House. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for um, your grace and your salvation. We thank you for the ultimate sacrifice that was made on the cross for us. We thank you that this sacrifice is sufficient, that it is once and for all. And Lord, as we take communion this morning, as we um, reflect on your salvation, let us respond in living holy lives that you, yeah, that, that you delight in, God. You purchased uh, with your blood. God, show us how the law is a blessing. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are... Afternoon, Mercy House. The afternoon crew.